It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. I am a certified financial planner, a certified public accountant, and by day I'm a fee-only wealth manager. And, and I'm here to try to, you know, restore order to your financial chaos and go beyond common sense. And what we're talking about today, when I start to wonder what am I going to talk about with you guys, I'm always amazed how things just fall in my lap. And what's happened, if we're looking for a silver lining and all this craziness that's gone on in the equity markets where we've had the ups, the downs... There is one big silver lining that um, has impacted my own personal financial life in the last two weeks, so I figured I'd share it with you guys, and that is that mortgage interest rates on the 15-year and 30-year fixed-term rates are actually at a great period to consider refinancing, or if you're buying a brand new house, this is a great time to be locking in on some of these 15-year and 30-year rates. And why am I saying that? It's because I'll tell you, when I bought my house in 2004, the fixed rates, like on the 15-year and 30-year, were much higher than the ARM products. If you're out there in like a, a 5-1 ARM or a 7-1 ARM or 3-1 ARM that's going to reset, and do you all know what an ARM is? When I say like a 5-1 ARM, what that means is that you have uh, an interest rate that's locked in at the same rate for five years, but then it starts to float after that. It becomes variable after five years. Same thing with 7-1 arm means that it's locked in for seven years at the same rate, but then after that seven-year period is, has expired, then you're out there floating with whatever the, the markets are doing. So you can imagine that when I bought my house back in 2004, the fixed rates were somewhere in the sixes, Meanwhile, I was able to lock in four and three quarters or four point seven five percent on on a seven year arm. Well, I've been you know I'm in, been in the house now going on four years, and so I've got three years left. And what do you know? Long term rates have come down significantly. I, I was able to lock in last week a fifteen year mortgage at four and seven eighths. That's a tick, just a tick, one eighth above the four and three quarters. But I'm tickled pink because. It doesn't matter what happens out there in this crazy, crazy financial world. I know that I've got a mortgage now that's going to be with me until I, you know, either move from this house or pay off this house. And that's kind of a comforting feeling. So that's why I figured, hey, why not do a show to share with listeners what they need to consider when we're talking about mortgage rates and refinancing or purchasing a new house, specifically talking about the 15-year and 30-year products. I've already done a show a while back talking about trying to make the decision between, you know, the, the, the arms, the short-term products versus the long-term. So it's not that type of show, but I do think there's enough information that I want to share several things with you. I want to talk about fixed rates and why they've dropped. I'm going to give you my personal insight into why I think, because we take something that's pretty complicated and try to make it very simple for you. I'm going to help you make the decision between 15-year or 30-year rates. I'm also going to talk about interest rates and, and discount points and loan origination fees and how they all kind of are intertwined and work together. And then we're going to talk about escrow um, or no escrow, you know, and what that means and what type of decisions. And then I've got a great article that's actually from Smart Money called Cut Those Closing Costs, because after you decide to make these decisions, you've got to pay attention to the fees that you're paying out there on this type of transaction. So there's a great article that came out in October of 2006 that is very pertinent to today with with everything that's going on with this silver lining in this crazy financial marketplace. So I'm going to jump right into the discussion. 
Uh, the first thing, let's talk about why have fixed rates dropped. And, and like I said, I'm taking something that's pretty complex, but I'm going to try to make it simple. You know, I know the Federal Reserve has dropped interest rates, um, you know, two and a half weeks ago. I think they dropped it, you know, 75 basis points. That was huge. That was the biggest drop they've done since they revised a lot of the, the policies back in the early 90s. So that's tremendous that they dropped it down three-quarters of 1%. And then, and that was before their official meeting. So that's kind of interesting that they came out and made this big 75 basis point drop before their official meeting. And then they came out last week, and they dropped interest rates another half a percent. Now, when the Federal Reserve drops interest rates, they are dropping the short-term interest rate. And, and those directly impact your, your savings accounts, your checking accounts, your CDs, your credit card you know, accounts, as well as you know, like your home equity lines that are tied to prime. So those things are immediately impacted because those are short-term rates that are very variable. Um, but your, your fixed products aren't directly tied to those short-term rates, but they are influenced. Because you're not going to have too much of a spread between the short term and long term, but so they are influenced. But that's not what drives your long term fixed, you know, mortgages down significantly. What drives your fixed income, your I mean, your fixed rates, uh, your 15 and 30 year rates down, is the supply and demand. It all comes back to basic econ 101 supply and demand. And let me tell you, with what we've had happen in January of 2008, a lot of people are fleeing risk. They are scared. And when people flee risk and get scared, what do they want to do? They want to go buy long-term bonds. So you got a lot of people out there wanting to buy long-term bonds because they're scared of what's been going on out there in the equity marketplace. So this is where that silver lining comes in because if you've got a lot of people trying to buy long-term bonds, you know, let's just say the rate on the long-term bond is 4.5%. And you got everybody buying it. Well, if you're the issuer, um, you only have so many that you're going to issue at 4.5%. But if you still have a lot of people saying, hey, give me more, give me more, give me more long-term bonds, maybe you drop the rate down to four and a quarter. And then, you know, because you've got all these people, you're not going to keep, you're not going up with the rate when you have all these people wanting. You're going to go down, you know, to see how much demand there really is for your product. So you drop it down to four and a quarter percent. And then, you know, people still, I'm scared to death. Give me more. Give me more. So, you know, if you've got all these people still demanding a lot of the long-term bonds at four and a quarter percent, it goes down, say it goes down to four. And I'm making this very simple, and I'm using this for illustration purposes. But remember, supply and demand. When you have a lot of demand, with limited supply, you, with a bond, interest rates are going to go down. That, that's what happens. So if it goes down to four and you still have people wanting to buy it, you can see how this is very good, not good on the investment side because you're pushing the yields down on what these bonds are going to pay you over the period, but it is great if you're a, a person that is trying to refinance or purchase a new home out there because I'll tell you, a good indication of this is it, that, that investors are fleeing risk and fleeing the equity markets is that if you go look at the 10-year treasury, I believe, and I'm doing this off memory, I believe about a week ago, it got down to like 3.8% on a 10-year treasury. That's unbelievable. So that directly does have an impact on some of these 15-year and 30-year products. So it's all about the supply and demand. Now let's talk about 15-year versus a 30-year mortgage because everybody always wants to know, hey, do I need to do a 15-year or should I go do the traditional 30-year that we're all familiar with? Um, and, and I'll tell you, it all depends upon your personal situation because I'll tell you, I'll give you my own personal experience is that I, I was one of those people, I, I've, I've owned two houses now. 
my first house, loved it. Um, but it was, a, it was, you know, the first house for me and my wife, it was kind of a starter home. And um, as we've grown, as the family's grown, we've had a daughter, you know, picked up a dog and some other things. We needed a little more space. We wanted to get a little bigger house. So we decided we needed to move. So we, we built our own house. We built our second house. We owned our, our house that we, you know, our first house we were living in. And then we built our second house. Well, it was time to move into the second house. But unfortunately, we were not, we had not sold our first house yet. You know, so we were sitting on two houses for, for a brief period of time. And I can never forget. I was on a 15-year mortgage at the time uh, on the first house. And I love 15-year mortgages, but this is the downside to 15-year mortgages is that um, when you are owning two houses because, unfortunately, you couldn't sell the first one, uh, it gets tough. You're kind of kicking yourself because you're like, man, it sure would be nice to have that 30-year mortgage instead of that 15-year mortgage on this house because it is killing me to pay for two houses. So you've got to think about your current situation. I'm just giving you my personal experience of what happened. I'm about, By the way, I am refinancing into another 15-year mortgage, so don't think that that situation has um, left such a sour taste in my mouth that I'm staying away from that type of product because I think I fit into the situation where 15-year actually makes sense because listen to these personal situations you need to take into account to figure out a 15-year versus a 30-year. Now, remember... A 30-year does not mean you can't pay off that house sooner than 30 years. You could pay your house off in 20 years. You can pay it off in 15. You can pay it off in 10 or 5 years. It's just that's what their, their minimum required payment is going to be each month. So when I talk about a 15-year, it means that they're going to amortize it over 180 months. If I'm talking about a 30-year, they're going to amortize your loan over 360 months. So the, but you can pay down that 30-year sooner. So I know there's people out there saying, well, you know, you can pay off your 30-year your in 15 years. That's true. The difference is typically there's about a half a percent pri- you know interest rate difference between the 30 year and 15 year. That's not, you know, that's not set in stone or anything, but if you go out there and look at interest rates, typically there's about a half a percent difference between the two. It might vary just a little bit, but historically what my experience is is about a half a percent. And these are the personal situations you've got to take into account. You've got to take into account your current saving strategy. If you're fully funding your retirement, Meaning you're putting that 15 to 20 percent uh, of your income into you know either retirement accounts or or, or some type of an investment account um, you know to, to be used in the long term, then you know and you still have extra money laying around. If you're at that point in your life, then you might be a good candidate for a 15 year mortgage because let's face it, after you're fully funding your savings goals, why not go ahead and pay down some debt? I mean that's that's always a positive thing if you can. You know, quit pay, owing people money. I think that's a very healthy thing. You also have to think about the likelihood of how long you're going to stay in the house because of that exact same situation that I did with the, when I got into a 15-year mortgage with my first house is that I refinanced from a 30-year into that 15-year product, and then I ended up moving out three years later. And that's why I had that second-guessing myself is because I should have known that I was probably going to move in three, three to four years from that house so I had no business refinancing into that 15-year mortgage because it put me in a world of hurt of trying to carry two mortgage payments at the same time. So you've got to think about what's the likelihood that you're going to stay in this house because if you're going to be moving in a few years or a year or two years, maybe you want the flexibility of having, you know, because maybe your cash flow varies. So you've got to think about, you know, how long you're going to stay in the house. you also got to think about your cash flow. Maybe you're a salesman where you're, you 
make a ton of money the first three months of the year because that's the way your the cycle you know the the cycle of your business of your year is, is you make a lot of money the first three months of the year but maybe the end of the year around Christmas it's hard on you maybe you need the flexibility of a lower interest payment I mean a low more, lower mortgage payment so you might not be a candidate for the fifteen years so you've got to take your personal situation into account also. The last thing that I tell you on your personal situation is your tax bracket. And what do I mean when I say you got to take into account your income tax bracket and your income? What I mean there is there's this dreadful thing out there called alternative minimum tax. And what happens is, is if you make, you know, as a married couple or, or a couple filing mar- married filing jointly and you make between, say, 140 to 150 or if you're an, a single individual and you make, say, between seventy to $90,000, you're going to notice that you have this thing on your tax return called alternative minimum tax. And what that is, is a tax that kicks in um, if you have too many deductions. And if your income's to a certain level and you have itemized deductions like mortgage interest, property taxes, charitable, con- well, charitable contributions are actually excluded. But if you have mortgage interest, taxes, uh, and, you know, and business expenses on your itemized deduction schedule, if you hit the alternative minimum tax area, you know, that's usually like I said between 140 to 150,000 dollars. They start wiping out some of those deductions. So there might be a portion of you out there that are not truly getting that mortgage deduction anymore. And if you're not getting the deduct- the, the deductibility, ooh, tongue twister. I don't know why my tongue's not working today. I fell asleep. But if you're not getting the the <laughs> the deductibility of that mortgage interest, then why not go ahead and pay off that house sooner? Um, because you you want to, there's no reason if you're not getting that mortgage interest deduction um, and you're already fully funding retirement why you shouldn't just go ahead and pay it off in 15 years and maybe the 15 year mortgage works better for you then because alternative minimum tax wipes out a lot of those itemized deductions that you know you're not going to get to take anymore so you might as well go ahead and pay off the house sooner since you're not really getting that benefit now let's talk about interest rates and discount points, and I put discount points slash loan loan origination fee because they're kind of one in the same thing. Discount points are, um, you know, they can be where you're actually buying down the interest rate. Um, you're paying for the discount to discount the interest rate, or it can be in the form of loan origination fee, meaning that's just the fee that you're paying to get the loan from the lender. Um, the the IRS looks at these things as the exact same thing. You know, they go on your your you can put them as an itemized deduction if it's a brand new purchase. Um, you can write off your loan origination fee or your discount points in the year that you acquire the house. There's a big difference, though, if you're refinancing. If you're refinancing, you have to spread the cost of the loan origination fee and the loan discount points over the life of the loan. So if it's a 15-year mortgage, you've got to divide whatever you paid on, um, you know, for loan discount points or loan origination fees over to buy 15, and then you get to take each portion each year for, you know, of, of that discount point. Now, if you sell the house or you refinance again, you do get to immediately take all that discount points or loan origination in the year that you sell or refinance. But if it is a refinance, you have to spread it out over the life. You can't take it all as once on your tax return. And you also need to do what's called a break-even analysis. And this is going to help you in multiple ways. It's going to help you determine, first, should I pay for a discount on my interest rate? And it's also going to come up later when I talk about should you do what's called a true no-cost refinance. So let me take off. Hang on one second. So if you're talking about break-even analysis, I used an example here. 
And what you're trying to do with a, a break-even analysis is figure out what the difference in monthly payments on your mortgage is and, versus the cost of what the discount, co- you know, the, the, what, if you have to pay $1,500 for a discount on your interest rate of like a quarter percent, how many months are you going to have to live in that house before the cheaper mortgage payment pays for that $1,500 you had to come out of pocket at closing. So I used an example because I think an example is probably the best way to get this across. If you had a $200,000 loan, and I just made these numbers up to keep the math simple, so this is not reflective of what's going on out there in the market, but I do think it's a good example. If you have a $200,000 loan out there and you're you're shopping around 30-year fixed rate mortgages. And the first one is 5.5%. That's what market is, is 5.5% on a 30-year mortgage. Your payment's going to be about $1,136 a month. But your lender comes to you and says, hey, Brian, I've got a great deal. How about if you pay an additional $1,500 at closing, and I'm going to drop your interest rate from 5.5% down to 5.25%. And by doing that, by paying that $1,500 at closing, you go drop your mortgage payment from 1136 a month down to $1104 a month. That's a savings, a monthly savings of $32 a month by paying 52 50, $1500 at the date of closing. So, now you got to figure out what's the break even on was this a good deal or is this not a good deal and should I take this offer from the mortgage lender? And that's where you take the $1,500 divided by the monthly savings. Remember I told you you're going to save $32 a month by having that quarter of a percent um, savings on your interest rate. So you take $1,500 divided by 32 months. You've got to live in the house 47 months to pay for that $1,500 discount. So as long as you live in the house four years or longer, it's a good deal. So you have to ask yourself, how long am I going to be in this house? Is this my dream house? Is this the house I'm going to be in for the next seven, eight years? And then you can analyze whether or not it's a good idea to to buy the discount points on the loan. And I'll tell you, it's an easier decision, I think, when you're buying a brand new house because you get to take that mortgage interest deduction on the discount immediately in the year that you purchase versus spreading it out over 180 months or 360 if it's a 15 versus a 30 year mortgage cuz you know that's not too you know not getting a huge tax benefit in that aspect but it is definitely a decision that I think if you use this break even analysis that can help you out tremendously now there are some limitations what happens if you get a different job opportunity in 3 years and you haven't lived in the house the full 4 years to pay back the discount points on you know on the lower monthly payment then you've lost that's not a good deal for you and I know there's also people out there saying well wait a minute Brian what about if you invest that $1500 into a savings account it might be worth 16 to $1700 you know in 4 or 5 years then I didn't take into account the time value of money or any of that. This is just a real quick and dirty, easy way to calculate, does it make sense through this break-even analysis to do this? Also, I've already kind of mentioned a purchase versus a refinance. Purchases, the fees, the interest, you know, the, the discount as well as the loan origination fees are completely deductible up front. If you do a refinance, you got to spread it out over the length of the term of the loan. Let's talk about no-cost refinances. I see these advertised all the time on the radio and on the TV these days, and there's two different types. There's the fake type of no-cost refinance, and then there's the real deal. Um, Let's talk about first the fake form of no-cost refinance. Um, This is where you just take the closing cost and roll them into your new loan balance, meaning if you owe $150,000 on your house when you go to refinance and you go to the closing table and you see your new mortgage balance is going to be $155,000, You've paid $5,000 of closing costs um, because it's now in the loan 
in your full loan that you're going to be paying for the next 30 years, that's not truly free because you're paying that $5,000. Just now you're going to be paying for that $5,000 for the next 30 years. That I don't like that because that, that's not really free. You're just rolling it in just because you didn't pay any money out of pocket at the closing table does not mean that it was truly a no cost. It just got rolled into the loan. So that's what I consider the fake version of no cost closings. Uh, because I think that, you know, if you're taking something that maybe you can pay for out of your own cash flow or savings, um, and now you're going to pay for it for the next 30 years, you know, so instead of paying $5,000, maybe you pay $15,000 for these closing costs, that's not a great deal. A true no-cost closing is going to have a premium on the interest rate, and it's usually about a half a percent. So if the market on inter- on 30-year mortgages right now is 5.5%, uh, if you did a true no-cost refinance, maybe it, you, you could get a 30-year with no cost to you at 6% because what they do is instead of charging you fees for the closing, the lender will just take a premium on the interest rate. They'll raise the interest rate pr- somewhere around a half a percent, and that's where they get paid is by taking charging you know a higher interest rate. Now, that's a, not a bad deal if you're sitting in a, like a 6.5% 30-year mortgage right now if you could go lock in on a new 30-year at 6% even, you just saved yourself a half a percent on your mortgage rate with no cost to you. So that's what I say when I say true no cost. You don't pay any closing cost at closing, um, but there is a premium on the interest rate. Um, Now, when I say you don't pay any closing cost, this is something I need to clarify because I've had quite a few clients that get confused about this. It doesn't mean at the closing table you're not going to have to pay anything because if you have escrow in your account, now escrow is where you pay property. You have the mortgage company out of your monthly payment. You're paying both insurance as well as property taxes every month. Um, you would probably, if you have escrow in your account, you are going to have to pay the prepaid items at the closing table, even on a true no-cost refinance. So you might end up, you know, I've had people call me and say, hey, Brian, I had to write a $2,500 check at closing. Why? This is supposed to be a no-cost. You're paying the prepaids. You're paying for the, the taxes, the reserves that you're required to keep on your property taxes, and your mortgage insurance, your homeowner's insurance, um, that's what you're paying at the closing table. It's not really closing costs. You're paying what's known as prepaids, and prepaids you can't negotiate out of. There's just no way to do it. If you were carrying escrow on your account, um, you're not going to be able to get out. Now, escrow, should you have it, I will tell you lenders like you to have escrow because it takes more risk away from the fact that you might not be saving enough money to pay your, your property tax bill or your homeowner's insurance. So lenders do like escrow, and they might even try to, to, to charge you a little bit of a premium if you call them up and say, hey, I don't want to do escrow. It all depends upon your credit rating and, and how good of a customer your deal looks to be. So you have to make the personal decision whether you want escrow or no escrow, meaning whether you want to pay for the, the property taxes and the insurance out of your own cash flow, or do you want them to just to charge you a monthly amount that will cover um, th- th- those upcoming expenses. So these things are very, very important. Now let's talk about after you've made the decision and you've gone and made the, you know, determined whether you want a 15-year, 30-year, you've also negotiated, you know, the rate that you're going to get with the lender and you know what the loan origination fee and the discount points are. Now let's talk about closing costs. And that's why there's this great article out there from Smart Money called Cut Those Closing Costs that I'm going to put a link on the website to. And, you know, once again, that that link is moneyguy.net. You can go out there and look at that. 
Um, and I, I want to, before I jump into the article, I also want to remind you guys that you can type in your email address on the left-hand side of the website. And when you do that, you automatically will get the show notes sent directly to you. And that's tremendous in the fact that um, you don't have to do anything, and you'll get all these links sent to your email, and you can you know, click on the links right there. And it also lets us know who you are, because there's a part of me that wants to diversify. Just like we diversify our investments, I want to diversify um, because I know we have a great listenership out there on iTunes. What happens if iTunes decides they don't like me anymore? So that's why I say uh, if I could kind of get you to sign up for the newsletter or the show notes, you know, we're always going to be in con- you know, contact with each other, and I don't have to worry about if um, I ever got on the bad side of Apple's iTunes you know, and get dropped off the fe- featured page. So I'm just trying to do a little diversification. So go check us out at moneyguy.net. You can also email the show at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at moneyguy.net as well. Now, getting back to this smart money article, I think people, when they get to the closing table, they sometimes, they're so far into the process that they freak out about the thought of walking away from this deal for a $500 fee. But you do have to be very careful about what fees you're paying. And this article had some great things. It has some you know, things that you might be able to negotiate with your lender about not paying. Now, the things that it says, typical fees that you're not going to be able to get them to negotiate away from are, are fees that are performed by third parties. These are ones that you're probably, unless they look unusual, and that's why if you go to look at this article that I got on the website and follow the link, it'll give you what the average fees are for all these these different closing costs. And I think that's important because you can see if they're reasonable because some of these you're not going to be able to negotiate. Like, um, the, And these are all third-party fees usually, and that's title searches, appraisals, attorney's fees, and credit report and title insurance. These type of things, since they're done by a third party, you're probably not going to have much ground to stand on if you want to go try to beat them up and, and negotiate. But you can go negotiate courier fees, express mail, and administrative-type fees. Those things you probably can go pick on them and, and get something done there. And then there's the, what's known as affectionately as the junk fees or garbage fees. And those are excessive processing and documentation fees that are charged. And they're usually called underwriting fees, application fees, and, and anything like that. So those are the type of fees you want to try to avoid. And, and I'll tell you, like, from my, you know, it's always good. You can tell how good your lender is by when you look at your good faith estimate. Because let's talk about what the, how the process also works is that, you need to be smart and know what to ask for. Um, when you go and start nego- shopping for mortgages, you want to request that whoever you're talking to, on whichever lender, is that they sub- provide you with a good faith estimate of what the interest rate as well as what the closing costs are going to be. And it's called a good faith estimate. Um, and you want to go and look at those fees. And then after you negotiate and get all that set and you've bounced several lenders, because you do want to, you don't want to just go to one lender. You want to go out there and shop this around with multiple lenders. And once you get somebody you think you want to work with and they get you a good faith estimate and all the numbers tied to what you talked about on the phone, after you sign the contract, the day before closing, you want to ask for what's known as a HUD statement. A HUD statement is, is the settlement statement they're going to provide you at the closing that you're going to sign off on. It's also going to show you exactly how much money you need to show up at the closing table with. Um, I'll give you an example is that, you know, of how important this is. When me and my wife bought our very first house, I think I was 24 years of age, and um, we had no business buying a house at that age, but we did it anyway, and it turned out to be an okay deal. Um, but we showed up at closing. We knew how much the house was going to cost. And um, we pretty much showed up with our down payment, not much more. And I was shocked when I got in there 
and um, saw how much the closing fees were. And, and I'm sure the attorneys loved me because we ended up turning what should have been probably a 30 to 45 minute closing into two and a half hour ordeal. I'm sure that they hated me, but I was so going through each line item because I didn't know what the fees were. And I wasn't smart enough at the time to know that I should have asked for a HUD statement the day before. You know, that HUD statement would have had all the fees. It would have had it given us plenty of time so I could have negotiated these things and talked about them. But I didn't know any better. And I, I imagine there's many of you out there that probably feel pretty vulnerable about this whole process. And like I mentioned earlier, you might be willing to, to pay an extra $500 in fees just because you don't want to lose the deal. But if you ask for that HUD statement right before closing, you have a chance to go through it, and you're not going to be having any surprises when you walk in with your cashier's check from the bank because and, and, you're going to know exactly what's on that thing. So make sure you're asking for the HUD statement because it is a shock. There's a lot more fees. I think you know a lot of us, I know myself, when I first got into this, when I was 24 when we bought this house, I had no idea about how all this worked. I didn't know how all these loan origination fees were. I didn't know about all these attorney's fees and everything that's on these 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 good faith as well as HUD statements. That's why you need to educate yourself because let's face it, education is power. And if you're if you know what you're talking about when you're going and negotiating these things, as and then when you show up at the closing day, you have the power to know that you're not getting ripped off. And with that power, you're also going to be much more confident when you're shopping this among many different mortgage lenders. So make sure you educate yourself. Look at these articles I'm forwarding to you guys on the website. Listen to what I'm talking about when you're making the decision on what interest rate because knowledge is power. And this is such a situation. It's our important, it's one of our most important assets. I mean, your primary residence is going to be one of the biggest things you ever buy. So you've got to think about this and educate yourself so that you don't have that remorse, that buyer's remorse. I remember walking out at that closing on my first house, and I was just sick. I, I almost felt like I wanted to throw up because I ended up having to come out of pocket, you know, another two to three thousand dollars that I had no idea. And we had no business buying that house anyway. We, we, I, mean, I think me and my wife made sixty thousand dollars combined at the time, and here we were buying a, a like a hundred seventy-five thousand dollar house. We were young and just naive and didn't know any better. And I remember walking out of that closing just feeling like I had been stabbed a thousand times. And, you know, and, and, but it, it, you get better. I mean, I'll tell you, the second closing I did in 2004, I think the thing took 20 minutes. I mean, because I knew what to ask for. I'd already seen the HUD statement. It was like, you know, it was no big deal. And this refinance, you know, because I've done two refinances also, this refinance I'm going to probably do at the end of the month, not worried about it one bit because I know how the system works. I'm an educated consumer now. But when I was 24, bought that first house, had no clue, and I walked out just disgusted. And I don't. I want to save you from having that same bad feeling. If you go in and you're educated, you know what things are going to cost, you're going to come out of this much, much better. And pay attention to the fees. I, I think the fees are definitely something you can negotiate. It's just like because uh, this is so similar. You know, when you go buy a new car, a used car from a dealership, they're always trying to hit you up with these documentation fees that are just complete malarkey. But, um, you know, if you don't know any better, you end up paying it. It's the same thing when you look at these closing costs when you refinance or go buy a new house. So make sure you're educating yourself to make the right decisions. And I, I think if you do these things, you will be fine. Just try to avoid those junk fees. Try to avoid paying excessive um, premiums on the interest rates, and then go shop it. Now, I want to give you one word of caution, or not really a word of caution, but just give you a heads up. I'm one of these people, you know, I'm just as impressionable as you guys, and I see all these Lending Tree commercials, 
And um, they always seem like they're great deals. I mean, there's two commercials I can think of that stick to my head, stick out in my head. There's the one where you have the person that has that's had a banking relationship forever, and they go in and they tell their banker, "By the way, I'm refinancing or I'm getting a home equity loan, um, but I'm using Lending Tree. But don't worry, you guys are bidding. Y'all are one of the you know banks that's bidding on the process. So good luck. And then the other one I remember is the the father and son, where the father's telling his son, you know, I'm not using you for my refinance, even though you're a mortgage guy. Uh, I'm using Lending Tree. So I figured, you know, with all these advertisements, let me try Lending Tree out because I love getting a good deal. So I did it, and and it worked out fine. And it might be a great deal for somebody who doesn't have relationships in the mortgage industry because maybe you do want to shop this with quite a few different mortgage lenders to keep them all honest to do an apples to apples comparison. Um, but So it might be a good deal, but if you have mortgage connections already and you're just kind of a tire kicker, meaning you're just trying to see how good their rates are, um, beware because I did the, the, the lending tree and I'm sure that, that, you know, they got all excited because I have a decent sized loan balance and then I, you know, we have really good credit. So I got overwhelmed with a tidal wave of emails as well as phone calls from all these mortgage lenders that wanted to talk to me. And I just was not prepared for the, uh, you know, the onslaught of, of all these people trying to contact to try to get your business. So it was very, very overwhelming. And I just want to warn you guys, not that any of them did anything wrong. There was actually a few that I talked to just to let them know that I was a tire kicker and just see what my options were um, that were very nice. So like I said, if you don't have connections, maybe it's not a bad deal. But I will say if, you, if you're if you already kind of you know at that station in your life where you know some mortgage people and you can go shopping around and you feel like you're getting a good deal – be careful because these things will load you up with, you know, with all kind of phone calls, all kind of emails. Um, it was a little overwhelming, so I'm just throwing that out there. I, I didn't think anything was wrong with the process, but it was very, very overwhelming. So hopefully some of this information has been very, very helpful to you. If we're trying to find any silver lining with all this craziness out there in the financial markets, this is definitely it. So thanks for um, tuning in. Thanks for making this show successful. And um, I hope that you, you know, I am restoring order to your chaos and going beyond common sense for you and your family. So until next week, I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.